1: I went to Berkeley, UC Berkeley. However, that's not where I started. <laughs> my my 18-year-old daughter is applying to college. What if I don't like it? I said, honey, you're looking at the queen of transferring. I started at UC Santa Cruz. Then I transferred to UC Berkeley. Then I went to the Sorbonne in Paris. I did a year abroad in Paris. Then I went to UCLA summer school. And then I thought, mm, you know what? I better go back to Berkeley. So I've been all over the place. My next guest has had an equally, if not more fascinating, education, Harvard. She got a Fulbright scholarship. She went to Oxford University, and now she is running one of the hottest startups when it comes to online travel activities, booking, and the marketplace that she is making. I'd love to mention that she is also someone who has climbed very personal and difficult mountains to get where she is today and I'm not just talking about, oh, you failed here or there. These are shocking, upsetting, and important stories that she is to tell. And we're going to hear both her success and what she had to fight through to get there. Roswana Bashir of Peak Travel is with me now. Thank you so much for joining us on Everyone Talks to Liz. Thank you for having me, Liz. I'm really oh, excited to be here. Okay, you
0: travel all over the place. Tell me your latest travel schedule that you have just endured. Well, I was just saying that I just flew back from London uh, last week and then went straight to Utah, where we actually have a pretty large office. Over 100 people on our team are in Utah. And so kind of New York to Utah, back here on a red eye, um, which, by the way, from Salt Lake to New York is not a great red eye. It turns out it's only about three and a half, four hours long and you land at 6 a.m. and you slightly regret the red eye. Um, but it's great. Um, <laughs> it's great to be here and I uh, and feel very lucky to be able to travel. Um, it's fun and a big part of um, what we do as a company. You know, we connect the world through experiences, and a lot of what we're doing is helping people go out and have uh, great ways to explore the world around them.
1: Well, it's no longer enough to say, I've booked my hotel, I've got my rent-a-car, I'm going to Athens, Greece. Talk specifically about the company that you have built and what you do for every traveler
0: who wants to take it one, two or 30 steps further. Yeah. So, I mean, I think when I was traveling myself, I um, one of the big pain points I had is it's really easy to figure out where to stay or, you know, how to get a flight. But when it came to all the things you do... I was spending hours and hours researching, what should I do when I go to a new place? Maybe I'm going to New Orleans for the weekend. I've been thinking about that for President's Day. What do I do when I get there? Um, You know figuring out what operators are out there doing great experiences and then seeing who's trustworthy. What would I actually personally like based on my interests? And so the whole process of booking great things to do was always this really lengthy thing, many hours of research, and then having to make lots of phone calls because very rarely were these small businesses online. And so I had that problem myself, which is what inspired me to start building Peak. And so with Peak.com, we have a one-stop shop for consumers to come and they can book from over 20,000 activities. So we've got the largest selection of activities in America America. we've got over a million reviews and ratings all from verified people and so you can kind of look at that and see all the things we have available and you can book and buy instantly so if you want to book something in New York this afternoon you can go on a site and find great things to do and so really that's kind of you know the problem we've been solving and so what's really great about that is that I think as consumers now we're not trying to buy products we want to have experiences and we know that's what makes us happier and more fulfilled
1: well it's beyond The usual tourism, let's go see the Statue of Liberty. These are these are very unique experiences. You just mentioned thousands and thousands of them that you have on peak.com. Give me some of the wildest right now that are there that people absolutely
0: love. Yeah, you know, a lot of the you know, the funny thing for us is that the things that people love are the things that actually allow you to do things um, in nature and that also allow you to spend time with your family. So I think it's actually funny. It's not really about the wildest ones. Well, the things that people really love is just taking your kids ziplining, teaching them how to rock climb, going and seeing dolphins in Florida. Well, you know, in December when the weather's still good, you know. So it's actually a lot of what we see people doing is actually um, moving towards making these special occasions and actually making them everyday experiences. So about a third of the experiences that are on our platform, which is hundreds of millions of dollars of bookings that are happening every year, they're actually local. You know, people are taking a cooking class instead of doing a date night, right? So it's actually, you'd be surprised, a lot of it's around saying, well, I could just Netflix and chill, or maybe I'll get out there and do something, or I'll spend time with people in a more fulfilling way. In a way, it seems like that has been what people
1: credit millennials for. They would rather have experiences than buy a bracelet in the open marketplace. So we went to Israel about two years ago, December, and... We had an experience where we cooked with a Bedouin family in their home, and we all went around the kitchen table, and were chopping, and we're rolling, and we're making the grape leaves, and it was fascinating. This Bedouin woman and her family barely spoke any English, but it didn't matter. The experience that we had over an open fire making the bread, I thought to myself,
0: I would have never thought to do this 10 years ago. Are you international now? Yeah, so we're just beginning to do some international things. So I was just in Costa Rica, actually, over Christmas. And so we have some amazing experiences there. And so we are beginning. So we've got 20,000 activities in America. And we're adding to those and starting to do some global expansion. A lot of what we're trying to do, though, is help Americans. So you know, 90% of our customers are Americans. And actually, a lot of Americans travel within America and Mexico. And so those are the two markets we've really focused on. But as time's gone on, we've seen demand for our product elsewhere. So we're beginning um, to now expand international internationally. internationally. And I'm really excited to go everywhere. I've done these amazing trips. I've been to Israel or Mongolia or all these other places. So over the long term, we're excited for the international expansion. But we also recognize that what we're trying to do is actually revolutionize this industry. And there's still such a long way to go in the US.
1: Oh, indeed, indeed. But you know, Airbnb is trying to do this experience stuff too now. Do you view them as your competition? Well, I think
0: what we're both seeing is that this is a market that's about $200 billion globally right? Um, And it's growing. And, you know, I think it's going to be a trillion dollar market over the long term. And so, you know, the way that we're tackling it is a bit different, actually. And so for us, one of the things that we've realized is that there are already uh, thousands and thousands of businesses that already do these activities, but Mm -hmm. they're not online yet. And so what we actually did is enable them with software. So, you know, Under the hood, what we actually do is power all of the websites um, and provide all the technology for thousands of our businesses to be able to come online and to run their whole business. And so that's quite different to what Airbnb is doing. So we have these tools called Peak Pro, which on average, when a business starts using the tools, they see an increase of about 30 percent in their revenue um, and they improve their customer experience and they save a ton of time and money. And so what we've been doing is really saying there are already thousands of businesses. They have not made that transition onto an online economy. Let's help them get up there um, and let's build them software and tools to do that. So in that way, we're very similar to OpenTable uh, and the businesses use our technology. So we are quite distinct in the market as being the only company that's really tackled this at scale and we're the leading um, player in, in providing these tools for operators as well as having a consumer marketplace.
1: I want to rewind a little bit to what we began with, which was your education, Harvard Oxford. Fulbright scholarship. Obviously, I'm looking at you and thinking, I hate her. She's a genius. Okay. Uh, how'd you end up at Harvard?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, actually, I ended up at Harvard um, after working for a few years, actually. So um, I, um, you know, I started my career, um, you know, well, actually, Oxford was probably the the biggest journey, and I, I went to university, and and uh, and then I started working in finance. So after Oxford, I got a job at Goldman Sachs, and then and then um, at Blackstone for a few years in London. And I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I was working in private equity, and it was amazing because I was getting all these skills and learning how to, to think about you know valuing businesses or how to grow businesses. Um, but I really wanted to kind of actually create value and build something new. And so I had that entrepreneurial bug, and I thought, well. I'm going to make the leap and come to America and go to business school. Um, And I thought the business school would teach me how to be an entrepreneur. It turns out it doesn't. (laughs) But it was a great way for me to get to the United States, which I think is an amazing place for entrepreneurship. There's no other place like it in the world. And so I got to America. um, I fell in love with startups. I started working in a couple of startups uh, here in New York, actually. And um, I thought, wow, here's this thing, situation where you can build something and put it on the web and it can impact people globally, millions of people. Well, specifically, you worked at GILT, G-I-L-T,
1: and... I love Kevin Ryan. Yeah. He's amazing. He's Mr. Entrepreneur. Completely agree. So you're working there. You're working at some other opportunities and you you come up with this idea for Peak. And wait till you guys hear who she got to invest in this. That's, That's so fascinating. This is
2: Everyone Talks to
1: Liz and we'll be right back.
2: Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List your trusted ally in home services.
1: I know my listeners hear your accent and it's British, but what they can't see is that you are Pakistani British born in England. Correct? Yes. Yeah. And yet those are very tight knit families and growing up, I don't know, you know, you think about all of the the different ethnicities where people want to keep you in their community and you flew like a bird far away. And, there is a darker story to your background that probably gave you wings to get away from that area. And only recently you were able to come out and talk about it. And it involved, as you, being a child, being sexually attacked by a neighbor in your community of British Pakistanis, correct?
0: Yeah, so I am, um, you know, when I was growing up, I think, um, you know, I grew up in a pretty poor, deprived neighborhood in the UK. Um, and um, unfortunately, um, you know, was abused as a child. And actually, um, you know, as as I was fortunate enough to, to kind of find my voice and, um, you know, do all these things, you know, work at Common, come to... Come to America, go to Harvard. I realised that, um, you know, I was really fortunate. You know, as somebody who had a lot of opportunity, um, to be able to have a voice and uh, ensure that that didn't continue happening. Um, and so I went back to the UK and I prosecuted my abuser, and he ended up going to jail. Um, and so I uh, ended up speaking about that publicly because I thought it was really important, um, to ensure that you know, in a lot of situations, sexual abuse, um, can be left unreported and we don't talk about these hard issues and i think i think the me too movement as an example has been one where i think a lot of us have become aware of all these things we didn't know about you know people do not talk about these hard issues and so we're learning about people who were raped by Harvey Weinstein and and and, and sometimes in plain sight so i think we're realizing and and i think when i came out it was very early in that um conversations it was before me too had happened but i realized you know, this had happened and the only way to stop it happening again was to speak about it. Well, let me just say, Me Too involves adults
1: being attacked by adults. You were how old when it first began? I was about 10 years old. Okay. So that, this is, this is pedophilia, criminal behavior, horrifying attack and
0: ruining, or at least attempting to ruin a Child's Innocence. Yeah, and I think what was really interesting about coming out with that was, um, you know, I wrote the story for The Guardian and it ended up being read by about a million people. And I heard from people all over the world. So I was getting contacted by you know, American friends, you know, uh, uh, um, a successful entrepreneur that I knew who had been, you know, who'd been molested by police officers in his uh, small town in Maine, right, through to, you know, uh, somebody from Japan, someone from Switzerland. And so one thing I realized is that communities all over the world really find it very difficult to talk about abuse. And whether it's with children or with adults, actually, you know, I found that in my experience of hearing from Many, many people, lots of men and women, actually, mm. that they've been abused as children, um, you know, basically saying, you know, we were in environments, especially 10 or 20 years ago, where people didn't talk about these things or people opened up um, and, you know, shared it with their family, with their church and other places. And they, they, it fell on deaf ears. Well, let me just let
1: our listeners know that when you finally came back and told your own
0: mother, her
1: reaction was not what you had hoped. It
0: wasn't. And unfortunately, what I learned over this time period is, you know, unfortunately, a lot of victims... Um, you know, and and who come forward have similar issues. So we expect, I think, our families to be extremely supportive. Um, we expect, you know, uh, police the police to be really uh, supportive. And actually, I think, unfortunately, we've built in society these kind of uh, situations where often people are not. You know, they find that it's um, you know, my community specifically there is a lot of shame associated with it. Um, but in a lot of other places, I think, you know, it's it's that people don't want to deal with these tough things, right? And especially if it's in the past, you know, if it's happening something that happened 10 or 20 years ago, it's very difficult. In the US, for example, some of the folks that I spoke with who were victims of abuse said that the statute of limitations stopped them from being able to come forward. And if they've been abused as children, of course, they might not have had the courage to say something. Um, and as they come forward in their 20s and 30s to say, I want justice, I want this person to to, to face justice, they weren't able to see that.
1: Well, the movie Spotlight, which was that 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 group of heroic journalists at the boston globe who took on the catholic church was very reminiscent to me i worked in boston and my very first assignment they sent me out and they said this priest has been accused this catholic priest has been accused of molesting children go knock on his door i get in the car with the camera crew i charge right over to the neighborhood i turn to my cameraman Irish Catholic guy, and I said, all right, let's go. Let's get the camera. I'm going to bang on his door. And he said, I'm not going up there. This is my parish. I am not doing that to my priest. And I remember thinking, whoa, hold on a minute. I know in this country you're innocent until proven guilty, but I, it was my first day, and I thought, listen, I'm Jewish. We have our own problems. But um, I, I just was so confused, and I said, all, all right, um, I'll walk up, you shoot from the car window. And he said, okay, that I'll do. But that community, the Pakistani community, but your own mother felt that you shouldn't come out because it would bring shame to the family. When in essence, it should bring shame to the criminal who did this to you.
0: You testified and got him how long a sentence? Uh, His sentence was about seven years. Uh, He ended up serving a little less than that. Um, But I think it was a really important thing. And I think, you know, I I think as entrepreneurs you have the job that you do mm-hmm. in your community in order to to help your community and so we connect the world through experiences and it's very fun and we help people find great things to do and there's a lot of smiles but I think also I think as entrepreneurs we do have voices about how we can impact uh, the world around us and I think that for me it was really important that you know I, I just started on my journey with Building Peak that I actually recognized my moral responsibility um, to others and, and I think when you do have that voice I was able to go back and 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 Ensure that he went to jail, but also speak about it so that we can have this conversation today. Um, I heard from all these people from all over the world, and actually, it, it meant that some people went forward. And so, the, the person I mentioned, the entrepreneur I mentioned um, from Maine, he mm-hmm. actually went back to his local community um, and tried to tackle, um, you know, a situation where police officers were responsible for, for for abusing young boys. And I think that in the end, you know, whenever any of us take a step forward, we help others to feel that sense of bravery. That sense of courage, and so you know, I think for me, um, it's very, very important that we recognize our responsibility as leaders and that the voice that we have
1: after he was convicted. Did you hear from other victims that had been attacked by him?
0: Not from him, but I heard from lots and lots of victims. There was actually another person that that, that, um, came forward with me, and that's how we got that successful prosecution. Um, but um. Um, I heard from victims from all over the world, um, in lots of different mm-hmm. communities, lots of different r- religions, races, and um, and gender, you know, both. What was it like facing him as an adult? You know, I think um, it's always tough to bring back things that you haven't thought about for a long time. So it was definitely tough, but it also felt quite freeing to know that you could actually take, you know, I think from... Ultimately in life, wherever you can have some control over the outcomes, you know, um, it makes a big difference. And so for me, it felt quite um, liberating to be able to tackle this thing that I really cared about.
1: Well, the, the world is filled with stories of people who buried things like this and the truth will out. And it it sometimes comes out in very bad ways if you don't deal with it. And we applaud you for the bravery, but also the impact you have on other victims that are out there to say, you know what, it's okay. Come out fighting, even if your own mom is against you doing it. And by doing this, you've been able to succeed professionally in so many different ways. And that's that's the great part of what we try and do here at Everyone Talks to Liz is tell those stories of eventual success after, after having dealt with such horrific or difficult challenges. That said, when you came up with the idea for Peak, you went head first. You're saying, I'm going to go to the very top and try and get people to invest in this. Two of the biggest names in Silicon Valley, Eric Schmidt, who ran Google for many, many years, and Jack Dorsey, who founded Twitter and now runs Square, gave you money. How did you convince them? What was your elevator
0: pitch? Yeah, so I think um, when we started the business, we were just saying, this is a $200 billion business, um, sorry, industry, and there's no big business. You can't give me a name of a company that helps you book a great experience, right? Um, and yet it's really, really difficult. So it's the third biggest segment of travel and there's no there's no companies digitizing it, bringing it online. We're having to make phone calls. None of us want to make phone calls. So our, our elevator pitch was very simple, which is we want to digitize the experience economy. Um, and that really resonated with those guys. I'd also... Um, Um, as I mentioned, I worked on a couple of startups and so was fortunate enough to work with Kevin Ryan uh, at Gilt and uh, my co-founder. So, you know, my background was more on the business side. My co-founder went to MIT, um, you know, had spent 15 years in Silicon Valley building great enterprise uh, software companies. And so the two of us came together and we really um, went and pitched people we'd talked to previously in, in the old companies we'd worked at. So we worked at startups before. And so that gave us an in way into like being able to talk to some of these investors. And so, you know, as soon as kind of one person took it seriously, we started to get those conversations rolling. And I think, you know, one thing that investors can be criticized for a little bit is, is the herd mentality. It's really hard to get the first yes. Oh, but once you do get I that know, yes, it right. does make it easier. So and then suddenly
1: everybody wants it. And you're saying, where were you guys when I was knocking on your door half a year ago? <laughs> completely.
0: And so a lot of people say no. Um, but once you get that first yes, um, it, it makes people think, OK, maybe there's something here. And so, you know, we were able to get those those initial couple of yeses. And that allowed us to get some great investors on board and and now we've raised about fifty million dollars to date and we have, you know the the CEO, former CEO of Yelp, the uh, the founders of kayak, um you know the on our board we have um Pete Flint who um, founded Trulia uh, and scaled sure. up that business. And so um you know we've got some really amazing people who've built very large technology companies like Google and others
1: and it feels like you have a, a long runway here because you can expand internationally. And you can look for those incredible experiences all over the world in somewhat untouched, pristine areas. I have to ask, what is the most fascinating location and experience
0: you've ever participated in? Wow, it's it's um, that's a tough one to pick. Um, I, I would say, I think um, um, for me, um, probably my favorite favorite country um, has been Brazil um, because of its diversity. And so I'd say the the thing I loved about that is that I was able to go and see kind of do Hardcore kind of nature things, and see uh, the Pantanal, and and there's a an island called Fernando de Noronha, which is a nature preserve, and it's beautiful, incredible, rich marine life. Um, all the way through to the kind of the energy and fun of Rio, um, which has also um you know a dark side with the favelas. You can actually do tours of the favelas. I did paragliding, um, where you kind of jump off and 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 you <gasps> land on the beach in Rio, uh, and you're able to see kind of the Statue of Christ the Redeemer and, oh, wow. and the entire city. Um, um, and so um, things like that. So that, that's that been a place where I, that I was really fond of, not for one specific experience, but for all the diversity that that country has, mm-hmm. um, where you can see so much. And, and there can be these extremely pristine areas and then the, the kind of, you know, energy of the city.
1: Peak. Peak travel at peak.com. P-E-E-K. Everybody, it's the difference between going on a trip with eyes closed versus eyes open. Go live it, experience it. Don't just sit by the pool, okay? That's so important. We are so proud of you, and we are so impressed with all that you have done. Roswana Bashir of peak.com. Congratulations. It's so important, folks, for you to hear these kinds of stories because you may look at success, and you may think, oh, how did she get there? Oh, God, well, she went to Harvard. She did this. Look at all she had to face and fight through huge boulders gigantic mountains to climb she did it so can you pick your dream reach for it snag it you can do it thanks so much for listening to everyone talks to liz and by the way monday through friday 3 p.m eastern you've got to watch your money so that you can make enough and travel right exactly on the fox business network check out my show the claim and countdown and we'll see you and hear you next time